This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will go over the topic of total shoulder arthroplasty from the shoulder and elbow section on orthobullets.com. A total shoulder arthroplasty is replacement of the humeral head and glenoid resurfacing. A cemented all-polyethylene glenoid resurfacing is standard of care. Total shoulder arthroplasty is unique from total hip arthroplasty and total knee arthroplasty in that there is greater range of motion in the shoulder and success depends on proper functioning of the soft tissues and the glenoid is less constrained, which leads to greater shear stresses and is more susceptible to mechanical loosening. Factors required for success of total shoulder arthroplasty include an intact and functional rotator cuff. If the rotator cuff is deficient and proximal migration of the humerus is seen on x-rays, like in rotator cuff arthropathy, then glenoid resurfacing is contraindicated. If there is an irreparable rotator cuff deficiency, then proceed with hemiarthroplasty or a reverse ball prosthesis. An isolated supraspinatus tear without retraction can proceed with a total shoulder arthroplasty. The incidence of full thickness rotator cuff tears in patients getting a total shoulder arthroplasty is 5% to 10%. If there are positive impingement signs on exam, order a preoperative MRI. With respect to glenoid bone stock inversion, if the glenoid is eroded down to the coracoid process, then glenoid resurfacing is contraindicated. As far as outcomes, pain relief is the most predictive benefit, more predictable than hemiarthroplasty. Total shoulder arthroplasty also has reliable range of motion, good survival at 10 years in 93% of patients, and there is good longevity with cemented and press-fit humeral components. However, there are worse results with post-capsulorophy arthropathy. With respect to glenoid wear, the Walsh classification is used to classify glenoid wear, and it's divided into three types, type A, type B, and type C. Type A is a well-centered glenoid. Subtype A1 has minor erosion, and subtype A2 has deeper central erosion. In type B, the head is subluxated posteriorly. Subtype B1 has posterior wear, and subtype B2 has severe biconcave wear. In type C, there is glenoid retroversion of more than 25 degrees and is dysplastic in origin. As far as indications for total shoulder arthroplasty, these include pain anterior to posterior, especially at night, and inability to perform activities of daily living, posterior humeral head subluxation, and glenoid chondral wear to bone, in which total shoulder arthroplasty is preferred over hemiarthroplasty for osteoarthritis and inflammatory arthritis. Contraindications to total shoulder arthroplasty include insufficient glenoid bone stock, rotator cuff arthropathy, deltoid dysfunction, active infection, brachial plexus palsy, or an irreparable rotator cuff. A hemiarthroplasty or reverse total shoulder arthroplasty are preferable in this circumstance. The risk of loosening of the glenoid prosthesis is high in the setting of an irreparable rotator cuff. This is otherwise known as the rocking horse phenomenon. As far as preoperative imaging, radiographs include true AP and an axillary view. A true AP determines the extent of arthritis and you can look for superior migration of the humerus. An axillary view looks for posterior wear of the glenoid. You can obtain a CT scan to determine glenoid version and glenoid bone stock. An MRI can be used to evaluate the rotator cuff condition. As far as the approach for a total shoulder arthroplasty, the deltopectoral approach is used where you will detach the subscapularis and capsule from the anterior humerus. Next, you will dislocate the shoulder anteriorly. Tight shoulders may require release of the upper half of the pectoralis tendon to increase exposure and dislocation. 
the pectoralis major tendon passes on top of the biceps tendon to attach to the humerus. With respect to complications, axillary nerve damage is the most common complication. Keep in mind the axillary nerve and the posterior humeral circumflex artery pass beneath the glenohumeral joint in the quadrilateral space. As far as technical considerations, four things to keep in mind are the capsule, glenoid deficiency and retroversion, the glenoid component, and the humeral stem fixation. With respect to the capsule, an anterior capsule contracture that is passive external rotation of less than 40 degrees is treated with anterior release and Z-lengthening. A stretched posterior capsule is treated with a volume-reducing procedure that is basically a plication of the posterior capsule. Moving on to glenoid deficiency and retroversion, glenoid deficiency is treated by building it up with iliac crest autograft or part of the resected humerus. Do not use cement to build up the deficiency. A retroverted glenoid is treated by building up the posterior glenoid with allograft, then eccentrically ream the anterior glenoid. Now, let's talk about the glenoid component. A convex backside is superior to a flat backside. It's important to recreate neutral version. A peg design is biomechanically superior to a keel design. Polyethylene-backed components are superior to metal-backed components. Keep in mind that the glenoid is not large enough to accommodate both metal and polyethylene. An uncemented glenoid has a lower rate of loosening, and with respect to conforming versus non-conforming, both have advantages and neither is superior. Conforming is more stable but leads to rim stress and radiolucencies. Non-conforming leads to increased polyethylene wear. Moving on to humeral stem fixation, you will use either a cemented stem or uncemented porous coated implant. The position of the humeral stem should be 25 to 45 degrees of retroversion. If the position of glenoid retroversion is required, then the humeral stem should be less retroverted to avoid posterior dislocation. Make sure to avoid valgus positioning of the humeral stem. Also make sure to avoid overstuffing the humeral head. This increases joint reaction forces and tension on the rotator cuff. The top of the humeral head should be 5 to 8 millimeters superior to the top of the greater tuberosity. With respect to an intraoperative humerus fracture, a greater tuberosity fracture, if minimally displaced, should be treated by inserting a standard humeral prosthesis with suture fixation and autogenous cancellous bone grafting of the greater tuberosity fracture. A humeral shaft fracture should be treated by removing the prosthesis and adding a longer stem with cement and reinforcing it with cerclage wiring. Moving on to rehabilitation, passive or active assisted motion is only done during early rehab. The limiting factor in early postoperative rehabilitation is risk of injury to the subscapularis tendon repair. Next, patients progress to external rotation isometrics as well as internal rotation eccentric and isometric strengthening. You will limit passive external rotation as there is risk of tear and pull-off of the subscapularis tendon from the anterior humerus. A tear leads to anterior shoulder instability, which is the most common form of instability after total shoulder arthroplasty. The treatment of subscapularis pull-off is early exploration and repair of the tendon. Patients should avoid pushing out of a chair during acute rehab. The test for pull-off of the subscapularis is a weak belly press test and an inability to put the hand in the back pants pockets or tuck the shirt behind the back. Finally, let's talk about complications. Glenoid loosening is the most common cause of total shoulder arthroplasty failure. In fact, is responsible for 30% of primary osteoarthritis revisions. Risk factors include insufficient glenoid bone stock and rotator cuff deficiency. There is a 2.9% reoperation rate for loosening, 28% with revision. 
with respect to radiographic lines, presence of radiographic lines does not correlate with symptoms. Progression of a radiographic line does correlate with symptoms. Progression is present in 50% of patients as early as 3 to 4 years after total shoulder arthroplasty. Radiolucency around the glenoid does not always correlate with clinical failure. Studies have shown that at 3- and 7-year follow-up did not correlate with poor functional outcomes or pain. Humeral stem loosening is another potential complication, which is more common in rheumatoid arthritis and osteonecrosis. Always make sure to rule out infection first in these cases. Other complications can include subscapularis repair failure, malposition of components, improper soft tissue balancing, where failure may be due to an undiagnosed presence of rotator cuff tears, Iatrogenic rotator cuff injury is another potential complication and can occur if the humeral neck osteotomy is inferior to the level of the rotator cuff insertion or overstuffing of the glenohumeral joint can lead to attritional supraspinatus and subscapularis tears. Stiffness is another potential complication. Infection is an important complication to be aware of and keep in mind that you may have normal aspiration results in these patients. An arthroscopic tissue culture is more sensitive, in fact, it's 100% sensitive and specific, compared to fluoroscopically guided aspiration, which has 17% sensitivity and 100% specificity. Propionobacterium acnes, or P. acnes, is the most common cause of indolent infections and implant failures. The infection rate is 1-2% to 2% after primary total shoulder arthroplasty. Characteristics of this organism is that it's a gram-positive, facultative, aerotolerant anaerobic rod that ferments lactose to propionic acid. It has high bacterial burden around the shoulder. It forms biofilms within 18 to 90 hours, which explains why aspiration is only 17% sensitive. P. acne's prosthetic joint infection is more common in males. Presentation of these infections is initial pain and stiffness, then later on swelling and redness. As far as the diagnosis, use anaerobic culture bottles and keep them for 10 to 14 days. However, the mean time to detection is 6 days. 16S ribosomal RNA-PCR is used for diagnosis. Imaging can include x-ray, CT, or ultrasound, which are positive for subluxation slash loosening in 24% of cases. If the implant is removed, sonicate the implant to dislodge bacteria from the surface and send for sonication culture. Treatment of early infection, which is defined as less than six weeks, is open irrigation and debridement. Late infection, that is defined as greater than six weeks, should be treated by explant and a two-stage reimplantation after IV antibiotics, like penicillin G, ceftriaxone, clindamycin, or vancomycin, for six weeks, followed by two to six months of PO antibiotics. Neurologic injury is another potential complication. The axillary nerve is the most commonly injured. The musculocutaneous nerve can be injured by retractor placement under the conjoint tendon. Finally, periprosthetic fracture is another important potential complication to be aware of. Acceptable fragment alignment is less than 20 degrees for flexion slash extension, less than 30 degrees varus valgus, and less than 20 degrees of rotation malalignment. The classification for total shoulder arthroplasty periprosthetic fracture is the right and cofield classification of periprosthetic fracture. There are three types. A, B, and C. Type A periprosthetic fractures are centered near the tip of the stem and it extends proximally. Treatment, if this is found intraoperatively, is to span the fracture with a standard length prosthesis that is two to three cortical diameters or a long stem prosthesis. Transosseous sutures can be used for tuberosity fractures. 
As far as treatment of type A fractures, if they are found postoperatively, usually minimally displaced slash angulated fractures can be treated non-operatively. If there is significant overlap between the proximal distal fragments, treat as if the stem is loose and revise to a long stem prosthesis. Type B periprosthetic fractures are centered at the tip of the stem and it extends distally. Treatment, if this is found intraoperatively, is to span the fracture with a standard length prosthesis, again that is two to three cortical diameters, or a long stem prosthesis. You will typically cement in the distal canal to engage the prosthesis, however do not let cement escape from the fracture site. A cortical strut allograft plus surclage can also be used. As far as treatment of type B fractures if they are found postoperatively, it will be similar as if it was found intraoperatively, as you will revise to a long stem prosthesis and cement in the distal canal to engage the prosthesis. Finally, type C periprosthetic fractures are located distal to the tip of the stem. Treatment, if this is found intraoperatively, is to use a long stem prosthesis, or if it's close to the olecranon fossa, plate plus screws, plus or minus surclage wire, and a strut allograft can be carried out. As far as treatment of type C fractures, if they are found postoperatively, you will do an open reduction internal fixation where the plate will overlap the prosthesis by two cortical diameters to avoid a stress riser. That's all for this review about total shoulder arthroplasty. Hopefully that was helpful. Look out for questions related to this topic on this weekend's question session, and hopefully this episode will have prepared you for that review. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. If you're enjoying the podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on iTunes. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thanks so much, and we'll see you all tomorrow.